Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. I Made It in San Diego is made possible in part by the Downtown San Diego Partnership, a nonprofit membership organization that's working to advance downtown San Diego as the leading economic, cultural, and governmental center of the region through leadership, advocacy, and education. Join the Downtown Partnership for a free workout between 8 a.m. and noon, Saturday, October 7th, on Island Street between 4th and 5th Avenue. The Downtown San Diego Partnership is bringing your workout to the street, complete with a live DJ, free giveaways, and more. Join the Action Downtown and enjoy various workouts like yoga and CrossFit throughout the morning. For more information, visit downtownsandiego.org. Yeah, we're standing in first ever Rubio's and California, everywhere, actually. Yeah. You gonna grab the uh, Alaskan Pollock? Just get the coating and a bit butter. Our signature. I'm gonna fry it now with a couple pieces of Pollock. And while we're frying that, we're gonna. Get some stone ground corn tortillas. From Voice of San Diego, this is I Made It in San Diego, a podcast about the stories behind the region's businesses, the big and the small, and the people who made them what they are. I'm Sarah Libby. As an editor, I kind of cringe whenever I read any big national news story about San Diego because it will inevitably find a way to mention two things, the beach and fish tacos. Even when it's a story about politics or something completely unrelated to either of those things, people just can't help themselves. They think of San Diego and they have to bring up the beach and fish tacos. Now, the beach has always been around. But it might surprise you to learn that when Ralph Rubio opened his first restaurant built around the fish taco, this thing that has become so synonymous with San Diego that it's now a cliche, no one came. Because it was just too weird. This was in the early 80s when a taco pretty much always meant a hard shell and ground beef. Even just using a soft tortilla made of yellow corn was strange at the time. And then to fill it with fried fish? It was a hard sell, and that was something that Ralph had not seen coming. I was very naive. Um, I told you about my love for fish tacos, and I, I, trans, I, I transfer that to, well, everyone's going to love fish tacos because I do. And so when we opened the restaurant, I expected people to flock. And actually, for the first year or two, it was very slow. It was, you know, I, we built it and nobody came. Um, 
But what was saved us was we had to educate people. And, and it was through word of mouth. You know, a few people would come in early on. They would fall in love with fish tacos at Rubio's on Mission Bay Drive. They would tell their friends. And so slowly we built the business. And after year two, it kind of caught on locally. Um, but yeah, there, there was a lot of resistance. I was surprised when people would say, what, fish in a tortilla? What are you thinking? That thought never, that thought never occurred to me. And so I, 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 was, I was ignorant of that or that possibility. I didn't realize what, what a marketing challenge I was in for. The reason Ralph had just assumed people would have this instant appreciation for fish tacos was because he'd himself had some pretty transcendent moments with Baja fish tacos. He began traveling down to Mexico on spring break and on other trips while he was a student at San Diego State. You know, a bunch of young dudes on spring break, I'm guessing they got up to some shenanigans on those trips, but... All Ralph talks about, the thing that really stuck with him was the fish tacos and beer in San Felipe, which is a small fishing village. As a freshman on spring break, a bunch of us from Zura Dorm, where I was living <laughs> at, at, on campus, went down to San Felipe to eat fish tacos and drink beer. Now, I'd never had a fish taco, never even heard of one. And I grew up around a lot of great Mexican food growing up because my parents were from Mexico. But I'm an adventurous eater, and so I thought I'd give it a go. And so I remember I'm... I'm, what, 19 years old, bite into my first fish taco in this little fishing village of San Felipe, and I was in love. Let me back up even further than that freshman year at SDSU. Before Ralph had even started college, he had a general plan for what he wanted to do in life. And the plan came from his dad. An important part of the story is uh, my dad. Um, I'm the oldest of five, and so he was my mentor. I looked up to him. He was an entrepreneur as I was growing up as a child. He, he, he developed a very successful career in plastics. Uh, without a college education, he immigrated from Mexico, taught himself English, and you know achieved great success. But even with the success he had in plastics on nights and weekends, he was always trying to start his own business. And so I saw that, and I would hang out with him when he was doing it. So. When I came down here in 1973 um, to go to San Diego State as a freshman, I had in the back of my mind that one day I was gonna own my own business. Because when I was very young, my dad just remarked to me, son, if you ever have a chance, owning your own business, I've gotta think is the most wonderful thing in the world. That's the best option. So that really stuck with me. I think you can see where this is going. Ralph had known his ultimate long-term goal was to start his own business. Then he spends four or five years making these pilgrimages down to San Felipe to eat fish tacos and drink beer. Those two things, it seems like, were meant to go together, like chocolate and peanut butter. Except instead of chocolate and peanut butter, it was opening a restaurant and serving fish tacos. So I'm sitting at a fish taco stand with, with my roommates, drinking Coronas, and the light bulb went off and I thought, I had my epiphany, and I said, you know what? I see all these college students loving fish tacos. Nobody is serving these in San Diego. Why don't I do it? And so that's where the genesis of Rubio's came from. So was there any point during that first year when it was slow when you thought maybe this isn't going to work? There were. And, um, you know, uh, you know, trying to keep labor costs down. Um, you know, my mom and my dad, we pitched in and my brothers and my sister, um, they all had equity in the business. So, you know, we were working as much as, as, as they were working as much as they needed to, but it was so slow. Sometimes it was just me washing the dishes at night and, you know, there'd be a Saturday night. I'm what I'm 29 years old. 
My friends are out partying, having a great time. And there I am washing pots and pans in Mission Bay on, on midnight on a Saturday. And I'm going, what is this? Is this what it's going to be like? And it was never my intention to just work in one restaurant. The idea was to build a prototype that we could scale into a chain of restaurants. And so, but, you know, the, the thing that encouraged me, and there were, there were a few times where I really thought, you know, I wonder if this is really going to work. And I had my doubts. But there, there weren't that many. And the reason was because... The first year um, on a, on graph paper, I I uh, I noted our our uh, I, I did a line graph of our sales for the first two years month by month, and if you look at the trajectory, it starts very low, and then it just gradually builds builds month after a successive month successive month, it got better and better, and if you look at the end of the two years, it's just you know a gradually growing uh, line you know, going north. And that encouraged me. And so that kept, that kept me and us going, you know, as far as the business was concerned. Did you or anyone at any point uh, get culinary training or did you all have experience sort of just in the business side? Yeah, uh, mostly on the, well, I had the experience on the business side. Culinary training over time, I've gotten, I, I've always headed up the culinary efforts at Rubio's, um, but I'm self-taught. But we hired professionals from the get-go. And so we've got a great team of culinary professionals at Rubio's now, uh, Justin, Dana, Taylor. There's really four of us. And then we bring outside people every now and then. But no, by and large, I've, I've kind of had to learn on the job. And uh, But we've relied on professionals. And my brother, was Robert, was a big help on the food side, you know, from day one. Uh, my brothers is, and my sisters and my father are no longer in the business. They've gone their own way over time. I'm the last Rubio standing, but, um, but you know, this was always my thing. I just really had a passion for it. And so I, I stuck it out. I'm still here. It's raining tacos from out of the sky. Tacos, no need to ask why. Just open your mouth and close your eyes. It's raining tacos. Okay, before we get too far down the road of how the business itself came together, mm-hmm. I want to talk about this taco. So I feel like to me, what is so glorious about the Rubio's fish taco is that there's nothing on it that doesn't need to be there. You know, there are some fish tacos in San Diego. My husband likes the brigantine. They Mm -hmm. have, you know, cheese, which I find very controversial. Yes. I understand where you're coming from. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to me about, did you go through a trial and error? I mean, that taco to me is perfect. So it had to have gone through some iterations. Was there avocado on at one point? How did you get to what the taco is now? That That is a great question. Um, there is an art to making a great fish taco. And the original fish taco Rubio's, um, which the ones you're talking about, which is my favorite as well, um, it was it's really a replica of that original experience that I had. Um, one of the things, looking back on it, I mean, if you break it down, one of the great things about our fish tacos is they're very simple, just as they were down in Mexico. The simplicity of Baja food I just really appreciate. And so you start with a soft shell corn tortilla, not not a hard shell, which was very typical back, you know, in the 70s and 80s. I grew up with that. But the, the notion of a soft shell corn tortilla with crispy fried fish, and down in, in Mexico, it's whatever they catch, you know, whatever's fresh. They just fillet it, and then they, they, they flour it, dust it in a beer batter that has oregano and mustard and, and, and pepper and salt and very simple um, beer batter. And then uh, you add a white sauce and a red salsa and some cabbage and a squeeze of lime, boom, you're done. 
And so that's that's exactly what my brother and I, when we got into the kitchen in the first Rubio's, we wanted to replicate that. And so the trial and error was not around the build or the ingredients. It was really around getting the batter recipe right. Because I had asked one of the vendors, this guy Carlos, who used to serve me my fish tacos next to Club Miramar, hey, what's in that beer batter? You know, um, And he told me. And so I wrote it down. Back then, before we had smartphones, I, I had a little phone uh, phone directory I carried in my wallet, the little tiny one. And so on the back hardcover, and if you come to my office, I can show it to you because it's still there framed. It says oregano and mustard and you know garlic and all these other maybe you know five or six ingredients, but I didn't know the proportions. And so that's what my brother and I played with. And so flour, beer, spices, mix it up, and then uh, you dust it in flour into the batter, into the fryer, and it comes out crispy. And that's what it took. That's what took a while. Um, the corn tortilla also, you know, um, a lot of times we, we use a stone ground corn tortilla, which is like a yellow corn. A lot of the tabletop tortillas in, in America are white corn. And so I wanted something that had more of a toasted corn, roasted corn flavor to it. And so working with the local tortilleria, we devised a thicker yellow corn tortilla, which was a bit revolutionary back in the, in 1983, because typically you go to a taqueria and it would be two thin corn tortillas and they were typically white corn. So the flavor profile was different. And so um, I wanted more of that toasted lime experience with the tortilla. And so getting the batter right, getting the tortilla right, and then the rest of it was pretty easy. The white sauce, which is our secret sauce, but it's not so secret. I've told it before. It's, it's really um, mayonnaise and sour cream, mm-hmm. you know, uh, at a certain proportion. And then um, a red salsa that's got um, jalapenos and oregano and um, cilantro and, and onions. I mean, just a very simple mild red salsa. And then we have a salsa bar at Rubio's, as you know, where you can really amp up the heat and such. So, so it's really a few ingredients. The key ones to get right are the beer batter and the, and the tortilla. And you're right, there's an art to it. But, you know, it's interesting how, you know, fish tacos have proliferated and all these different versions now. I mean, people are getting really creative. You go to George's at the Cove and have a swordfish, you know, grilled taco with uh, some kind of fancy cabbage on it. And they're going to charge, you know, 10 bucks or something. But I still think cars are the best. Yeah. So just like fish tacos maybe weren't the norm when you were starting out, I feel like Rubio's is in kind of its own lane a little bit as a maybe a fast casual chain, Mm -hmm. you would call it. You know, here in this office in downtown, we can walk to Tender Greens, we can Mm -hmm. walk to the kebab shop and lots of places like that now. Mm -hmm. Um, But was it a relatively new idea where it was maybe not like drive through centric, um, but it's also not a sit down (laughs) restaurant? Yeah, I could could make a case that Rubio's was one of the early fast casual brands because um, I, I didn't mention that well, I did work for the Harbor House, which was full-service restaurant chain in Seaport Village. I learned so much from them. But I also worked at the Hungry Hunter, um, you know, steak and seafood and in, in Mission Valley. And so what I wanted to do with Rubio's, yes, I wanted to bring that street food experience from Baja, but bring some full-service elements around service and cleanliness and, and things like that, quality, freshness. Um, so we were counter-service, but we weren't true fast food. You know, one of, one of the things that, as a consumer, that used to bother me, um, you know, sometimes I go to my favorite little burrito place, but they just wouldn't pay attention to wiping down those tables out in the patio, you know? And and so I just thought, there's a better way. You know, you can do this really fun, cool taco stand experience, but do it at a more upscale level. And so 
that's been a big part of our success. So not just the food itself, but the overall experience, we wanted to elevate that. By now you've heard Ralph mention practically his whole family. His dad not only planted the seed in his brain that he should become a business owner, but he provided that initial investment to buy the first restaurant. His brother was instrumental in developing the original fish taco, which put Rubio's on the map. His mom and other family members worked alongside him. In many ways, it might sound like Ralph was living the dream, but if you've ever actually worked in a family business, you know things can get complicated. So you've mentioned your dad many times and how he was really a partner with you through a lot of this, especially Mm -hmm. at the beginning. Now, my dad owned a restaurant my whole life. I grew Mm -hmm. up at the cash register and and things like that. And, And while I cherish that experience so much, I also remember, like, I don't ever remember fighting with my dad about homework or chores or anything like that. I remember having fights about the business and I can't let you leave, believe you let her do this and you should be prepping the food this way and things like that. So there have there been tensions um, with running a business within the family? My dad will tell you the same thing. Um, You know, we became partners. um, I was really looking forward to it. And uh, and then to your point, once you get into the business together and we're both pretty much a type personalities and um, but my dad came out of, um, you know, he's a self-made engineer. He came out of manufacturing. And so he kind of had a different approach to the business based on his background than I did. And we're different personalities. And so, yeah, there were butting of heads. There were conflicts. Uh, we worked through most of those things. Um, and then when we went public, you know, he had the opportunity, you know, to liquidate shares and go off and do and start other businesses. He was a serial entrepreneur. So he did his Rubio's thing and, and moved on. But to your point, yeah, there were challenges. Um, I really enjoyed those times working with my brothers and my sister. Um, by and large, uh, we all got along great and we spent a lot of time together and I'm still very close to, to them. Um, but yeah, there, in a family business, there are challenges. And so I always advise people. Um, if you think if you're going to get into a family business, beware, um, because um, oftentimes it can be a big challenge. Now, I've seen it where it's worked beautifully, where, um, say, a parent and a child can get along as you know equal partners effectively. Um, but I'd, I'd probably say it's the, the exception and not the rule. When we come back, more Rubios keep opening and eventually the chain goes public. And then later it goes unpublic. Hear about the struggles that came with growing so much so quickly. This podcast is sponsored in part by a proud supporter of Monarch Schools and Make-A-Wish San Diego. Monarch School educates students impacted by homelessness and helps them develop hope for a future with the necessary skills and experience for personal success. Make-A-Wish San Diego grants wishes to children with life-threatening medical conditions to enrich the human experience with hope, strength, and joy. To learn more about how you can get involved, please visit monarchschools.org and sandiego.wish.org. Hey, welcome back to I Made It in San Diego. I'm Sarah Libby. Some restaurants expand to multiple locations or become chains somewhat organically or unexpectedly. 
after they find success with a single location, they're enticed to branch out. But Ralph had always known from the beginning that he wanted to create a restaurant that could be scaled out to include multiple locations. Still, that didn't mean that growth was easy. So let's talk about going public. How sales start to climb. You're on Mission Bay Drive. Walk me through what happened, how we got from that location to what they have now. So we grew to about 12 restaurants out of using some debt and cash flow. So when we built a new restaurant, we would borrow maybe 100,000, 120,000 from Union Bank and we had a loan on each restaurant. And then we would fund the rest of the the capital cost um, out of cash flow. And that worked fine till, you know, say 12 restaurants and then my dad and I were personally guaranteeing everything. And that got a little dicey cuz you know, you're kind of really putting yourself out personally at that point. And so, um, long story short, we we raised venture capital. Uh, we did three, round, three rounds of private equity starting in 1995. And we raised $9.5 million to grow Rubio's to, to about 60 restaurants. And then at that point, um, our, our, our venture capital partners, they, they needed an exit, some liquidity. And so that's when we did the IPO in May of 1999. And we raised $23 million to grow Rubio's from 60 some restaurants to almost 200 restaurants. And, uh, and so, yeah, you, you know, you, you, it, I was learning all along. This was all new for me. It was an exciting time. Um, going public, looking back on it. Um, there was, there were things I didn't anticipate. Um, for instance, you know, with all the capital, then we were, and now you're public, you know, you're expected to grow. Ralph says he felt the pressure to grow revenues and to do it consistently each quarter right away. And that pressure led to some stumbles. Just like Ralph hadn't really anticipated in those very early days the challenges of marketing a fish taco to a population that had never heard of a fish taco, he said going public caused the company to make real estate moves that brought similar marketing challenges. They were expanding into the wrong areas, and once again, they weren't sure how to market themselves to their new neighbors. About eight years after the company went public, it started exploring options and looking for someone to buy the company. They turned down at least one sale offer, but in 2010, they accepted an offer from a private investment firm based in Connecticut called Mill Road Capital. Mill Road bought Rubio's for $91 million. The sale meant the company was private once again, but not a ton changed operationally. The company kept its headquarters in Carlsbad, the management team stayed intact, and Ralph Rubio retained an ownership role and a spot on the board of directors. The restaurant has gone through some big changes though when it comes to the customer experience. Instead of trying to compete directly with the Chipotle's and the Baja Freshes and La Salsa's of the world, they focused on the thing that made Rubio's unique, the seafood. They banked on the idea that having that differentiation would be the key. And it's largely worked so far. But seafood has its own set of challenges, including everything from sustainability to when you're actually allowed to use the word lobster. And so it's been good for the company because we've been able to reposition Rubio's. Um, I don't know if you've seen the new restaurants, we've repositioned the brand to Rubio's Coastal Grill less about a fresh Mexican grill and that Baja experience we've been talking about. And it's something that's more modern, more around grilled seafood, grilled shrimp, grilled mahi-mahi and coho salmon, salads and bowls. And so we've really 
um, extensively made some really great changes to the menu, the the beverage offering. Um, we we still off, we offer beer and wine, so we have beer and sangria. Craft beers now are part of the the menu, and so we've made some really um, influential and successful changes with the guest experience around the menu and the decor, and and it's allowed us to grow again. Now we're opening new restaurants where we hadn't been opening new restaurants for a while. So it was it's been a roller coaster ride to be honest with you, Sarah. You know, from the beginning, thirty four years. Um, I don't regret any of it. You know, there's a lot of lessons learned. It's been super exciting. Um, and so it, it's, it feels like we're about to embark on a new era. Like I said, we have around 206 restaurants, but we think we can double in size over time. You know, from the lessons we learned, you know, not growing too quickly is important. Conservative, um, conservative thoughtful growth is, is, is what's important. And so, um, yeah, I, I look forward to the future. It's exciting times again. So tell me about, we called it Lobster Gate, which is a great gate of all of them. <laughs> uh, so this was a, a lawsuit filed against Rubio's uh, back yeah. in 2005 about the distinction with calling something lobster uh, that includes langostino, which is yeah. common uh, in San Diego. What happened there and did you learn any lessons from that? Yeah, um, we, we vetted the notion of referring to our langostino as lobster. Langostino lobster with experts. Our marketing department spent a lot of time on it. We had documentation. We went through governmental agencies. Was it the FDA maybe at the time? And so we thought we had this all buttoned up. But I guess there was this gray area around Langostino and lobster that I wasn't fully aware of. And probably you could say the company wasn't. And so we're into it and we're marketing our Langostino um, as lobster, or maybe referring to it as. Right now, you can as long as you 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 modify it by um, by calling it langostino lobster, you're okay. But if you just call it lo- just call it lobster, that's when you get in. Now you get into trouble. But we didn't know that then, and so we were advertising, we were selling it. People loved it. And then um, uh, there was a plaintiff's attorney who took uh, who took the opportunity to turn into a class action lawsuit. They were just looking for you know someone to take advantage of, and that was us. And so we got into this litigation that we settled for a lot of money. And uh, yeah, it was a hard lesson learned. You know, um, did looking back on it, did we make a mistake? I could argue that we were in the right, um, that we had our documentation, that we had vetted it with the governmental agencies that we were supposed to. But at the time, we just decided to settle it because it was it would have been very expensive to defend. And so we've gone forward, you know, we still serve the very same thing. We just refer to it consistently as langostino lobster and it works fine. So So you mentioned that the menu has undergone some changes lately. There are a lot of healthy options. I think there's Mm -hmm. quinoa on the menu, which is very Southern California. It's very new. Have you ever had any menu items that just bombed and you could tell (laughs) right away that it maybe wasn't a good idea? Uh, Calamari. We had a calamari burrito. It was fried calamari in a burrito that didn't do so well. Though, a lot of times you don't know. You know, it tasted delicious, we thought. and uh, But then you put it on the marketplace. Another one was a cheeseburger taco, which I thought was really interesting with a nice aioli sauce. And um, and it was burger with a, on a flour tortilla with some lettuce and tomato or salsa fresca in our case. And it was really delicious, but it didn't do so well. There was too much of a disconnect. We were reaching too far. But, you know, 
that's the you know that's the thing about Rubius. We're willing to take risks and, and and we try to be progressive, and you know we we try to pioneer new ground around you know culinary ground when we can, and so you're going to make mistakes every now and then. But by and large, we've had a lot more successes than we've had failures. So with the healthy options, was that strictly a business decision or was there ever discussions about we should be, you know, somebody who's offering healthier fare and, and was it more about health and lifestyle? It was a, it was a business decision. Um, when Mill Road came into the picture, um, you know, they have ideas as in, in terms of thought leadership, strategy, where we could take the brand. They'd been following Rubio's for a while and they had an investment of Rubio's when we were public. And they're really smart guys. Uh, Tom Lynch, who's our chairman and the key principal at Mill Road, very bright guy, all of them there at Mill Road. And so we got in a room together for a couple of weeks and we tried to you know, map out a strategy. And we thought that you know, we could, we had this, um, our orientation in seafood, our credibility in seafood, we could build on that. But really move closer to more towards healthier fare, better for you fare, because that's what the marketplace was demanding. And so um, we added coho salmon, where we only had grilled mahi mahi before. So more um, more offerings around grilled seafood. We really revamped our grilled shrimp offering to to our. We've probably tripled our shrimp sales in the last five or six years. And so people, we, we, we felt, and rightly so, that people were looking for delicious grilled seafood options. And it's hard to get delicious grilled seafood in a fast casual setting anywhere in the United States. That was our market opportunity. And so that's what we went after. And so once we knew what the objective was, then we got into the kitchen and we started making all these new offerings. And then salads, we, we revamped our salad line entirely. Uh, the first a new salad was a chipotle orange salad with shrimp that is still with mandarin oranges and fresno chilies and it's with spring mix it's delicious and now you can get any any grilled protein chicken steak seafood on any bowl any salad and so there's a lot of variety that customization play comes into play there and so yeah it was by design it was deliberate uh, we we talked it out we thought it out before we went down that road and that was uh, the strategy that we undertook, and we're still going down that path today. With seafood being at you know the heart of of Rubio's, has this like increased awareness about sustainability with seafood impacted you at all? Well, that was we were always followed that practice of offering sustainable seafood. Right, it only makes good business sense because if you if you don't have uh, the the supply in the ocean, then you can't you know serve your guests. And so, we're we're even more into it now. Uh, we offer sustainable seafood wherever possible. Um, our shrimp is farm raised. Um, our but we, our pollock is well caught, along with our ono, our mahi mahi, or our, our Alaska salmon. And so, um, there's a blend of wild and farm seafood that we bring into the Rubio's. Uh, equation. And so you just have to get the balance right. And so, yeah, sustainability, I think one of the great things that I see going on in the marketplace, the awareness around sustainability and the ingredients, cleaner ingredients, you know, we've done a, a big job getting rid of artificial flavors and colors and preservatives in our food, like a lot of chains have because consumers are demanding it. And so I think that uh, 
business, including restaurants, are much much more responsible in terms of how they operate and what they offer. And there's a lot more transparency. And I think that is just a great thing. And so as, not just as a consumer, but as a business owner. And so I just love where we're headed. You know, I've got a millennial, um, my daughter, Danielle, she's 25 years old. Um, she studied environmental policy in school. And, uh, and her, her career path has taken her into that industry now as a professional. And so she was teaching her dad a lot of things along the way in terms of, Dad, you should be thinking about this or that and be more conscientious. And so um, that's, I, I just see this level of awareness everywhere, and it's just going to make the world a better place. I know I sound, you know, it sounds a little much, but it's true. You know, it's, it's true. We're all better off for it. Thanks for listening to I Made It in San Diego. I wrote the show, Kinsey Moreland produced it, Scott Lewis edited the script, and Adam Greenfield mastered and mixed it. Visit voiceofsandiego.org slash podcast to learn more about our weekly Voice of San Diego political affairs show, our Good Schools for All education podcast, the Kept Faith sports podcast, San Diego Beer Talk Radio, and all the shows in the VOSD podcast network. If you like the show, go to voiceofsandiego.org and click the donate button. Or if you'd like to sponsor it, contact Kinsey Moreland at kinsey at vosd.org.